Good evening. A murder charge in the killing of a black man by a cop in Michigan last April. Biden courts Latin America. Is it too little too late? 50 years since Watergate and a plan to build a new train station at Penn Station. It's hit by local people who say it's an assault on small business. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Thursday, January 9th, 2022, June 9th, 2022. Been saying January 6th a lot today. In the news, a White House police officer was charged with second-degree murder today for the fatal shooting of a black man during an altercation after a traffic stop two months ago in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in a case that sparked racial justice protests in the city. The criminal case against Officer Christopher Schur in the April 4th killing of Patrick Leoya, a 26-year-old refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo, came just over seven weeks after an independent autopsy found Leoya was shot in the back of the head at point-blank range. Chief Prosecuting Attorney for Kent County, Christopher Becker, said Schur had turned himself in to authorities and will be arraigned in court in Grand Rapids on Friday. Schur says a thorough police investigation led to his decision. I've made the decision to charge Christopher Schur with one count of second-degree murder. Uh, second-degree murder is a felony offense, is punishable by up to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Um, as it stands now, this is merely an allegation, and as with any defendant, he is presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And that is Kent County Prosecutor Christopher Becker. A forensic pathologist who performed an independent autopsy on Leoya concluded the officer had held his gun to the back of Leoya's head and fired once. Evidence the family's attorney, Ben Crump, said bolstered their view that Leoya was the victim of an execution. The prosecutor said he'd be sending a letter translated to Leoya's family's native Swahili to keep them apprised of the legal developments in the case. And President Joe Biden was in Los Angeles to open the two-day summit of the Americas. Another case of many, many refugees in the United States are very concerned about. He challenged business leaders to forge the economy of the future. I honor to host my fellow leaders from throughout the our hemisphere for the ninth summit of the Americas at a moment when we need more cooperation, common purpose, and transformative ideas that have never been a greater need than today. As we meet again today, in a moment when democracy is under assault around the world, let us unite again and renew our conviction that democracy is not only the defining feature of American histories, but the essential ingredient to America's futures. President Biden, you might have heard the shouts of a protester in the hall. He was shouting, or she, stop fossil fuel and was escorted out. Cuban foreign minister, but with several countries shunned by the United States and others, including economic giant Mexico, declining to attend, some critics of U.S. policy are claiming the summit is a flop. Cuban foreign minister Bruno Rodriguez branded the summit as an anti-democratic and exclusionary event and a new setback for the U.S. government, which Rodriguez says is blinded by its arrogance and contempt for the region. The United States did not invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and Cuban representatives were denied visas to prevent their participation in the people summit, which is taking place in parallel. The People's Summit was joined by protests and knocking the official event. Several protesters had this to say outside. 
talk very specifically to President Biden. What we're telling him is, you promise citizenship. You promise a permanent solution for the documented and for the people who have been who have temporary protected status now for decades. You have the power as a as a president of the United States to extend protection to our people, to stop the detention and deportation, and that is what we're demanding. No, absolutely not. The Summit of the Americas is not inclusive of black immigrants, of any person of color, really. I mean, what happens when you have politicians and executives in a room is often that the people that are most directly impacted by their decisions are left out. There was also at least one case where police seemed to assault a female protester, kicking her to the ground. In more news of the West's former colonial empires, King Philippe of Belgium was visited uh, visited his tiny European nation's former colony of the Congo today. He returned a ceremonial mass stolen during the European country's violent rule of the former colony. Philippe met with DRC President Felix Tshisekedi. Felipe called the gesture the symbolic beginning of a renewed relationship between the countries. He then apologized for Belgium's rule that led to the death of millions of Congolese a century ago. Bien que de nombreux Belges se soient investis sincèrement, aimant profondément le Congo et ses habitants. In partial translation, he said on the occasion of my first trip to the Congo right here in front of the Congolese people and those who are still suffering, I wish to affirm my deep regret for these past horrors. The United States has a lesser known role in the Congo's history, centering on the control of the African nation's mineral rich province of Katanga, where uranium for the first atomic bombs was mined in the 1930s. And here in the United States, the head of the White House pandemic response team, Dr. Ashish Jha, said today coronavirus vaccines could become available to children under the age of five within a matter of days. The FDA's advisory committee is going to be meeting next week on Tuesday, June 14th and Wednesday, June 15th, to review the data that was submitted by Pfizer and and Moderna, and they will make their recommendations. We expect the FDA to make a decision shortly after those meetings. The CDC's advisory committee is then going to meet on Friday, June 17th and Saturday, June 18th. We expect the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, to then make her recommendations sometime after those meetings. The vaccinations might be delayed because they'll all come due. All this information will come due on Juneteenth, which is a federal holiday and people will be at home. Rates of childhood vaccination have remained relatively flat with moderate uptake. 59.6% of adolescents ages 12 to 17 are fully vaccinated. The share falls to 29.3% for children between the ages of 5 and 12. Severe and fatal cases of COVID-19 among young children are highly rare, but have been recorded. According to the CDC, 442 children under the age of 5 have died from the disease. And tonight, the Select Committee of Congress investigating the January 6, 2021 invasion of the Pentagon will hold its first public hearing at about 7.30 p.m. and will lay out its case that former President Donald Trump knowingly led his supporters to invade the United States Capitol to try and halt the certification of the Electoral College ballots and prevent the election's winner, Joe Biden, from becoming president. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi batted down a question today. Does the public really care about what happened? The members of the committee, they have been hard at work doing their patriotic duty to seek the truth. And uh, we will see that revealed. I don't know. I've kept my distance from the committee, so I'll be watching just as everyone else is to see the presentation. 
I believe that tonight will be sort of an opening of the narration, the narrative of what happened as an assault on our democracy, on our constitution, on our capital, on our Congress in a very violent way. Nancy Pelosi, among the new evidence praised by the uh, committee at tonight's hearing are uh, or to be released for the first time by the committee at tonight's hearing are hours of until now unseen video shot by documentarian Nick Quested. A sample was provided to the media. I am not allowed to say what's going to happen today because everyone's just going to have to watch for themselves. But it's going to happen. Something's going to happen. A former researcher for the Southern Poverty Law Center, Heidi Byrick, has been following the extreme right. She says January 6th was an attack on freedom and democracy. Well, it sure looks like the January 6th Select Committee has put together the pieces between the involvement of extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, their connections possibly to um, sitting congressmen who may have given them tours of the Capitol the day before, And the Trump orbit, right? And that there was a lot more organization of what happened on January 6th than some just spontaneous riot that occurred. And that's what I expect to see tonight, that that this was a lot more planned. The insurrection was a lot more planned than any of us had realized and that there were connections between, you know, quote unquote, mainstream politicians and white supremacists and other extremists going on in the background in the days leading up to January 6th. To all the people who said these people are just a fringe crazies, they were going to go away. What message do we have for them? Well, that is completely the wrong tactic to take here. These people don't go away. If you don't look at them, if you don't investigate them, if you don't get information on them, they're going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to do it without anybody knowing. And then one day you find yourself having your democratic system under attack. So looking at how the events played out and led up to January 6th and who the players were and what they believed and what they did is critically important to make sure that we can protect this democracy going forward. This was the most serious attack ever on the Congress. I, it's, it's hard to underplay how close we came that day to losing our democratic system. And so we need to know everything about everybody who was involved in orchestrating January 6th. And then we have to take that information and use it to put in place policies and safeguards so this can never happen again. What does this say about American, much vaunted American institutions? The insurrection and and what happened surrounding it shows that our institutions are a lot more fragile and our democracy is a lot more fragile than we like to think. And Trump and his acolytes found all kinds of avenues and attempts to undermine things. I think the other thing people should remember is the Department of Justice came very close to having the person who was in charge deposed and and a Trump lackey put in charge who might have ultimately thrown this thing to, to Trump. So it was almost down to like one person. That is absolutely terrifying. And we have got to look at how we run elections and how our electoral system works. So this can't happen again. You're talking about Mike Pence. Um, well, I'm talking about um, Rosen at the Department of Justice, and that's who Trump wanted to displace. There's also the role of Mike Pence, right, having been the person standing in between Trump and subverting the entire vote counting on the day of January 6th. If he had gone along with Trump, who knows what would have happened that day? What really are they? What kind of world do they want in America? what they would like to do is turn back the clock really hard. These are reactionary movements. 
you know, the Proud Boys would like to return this country to a white patriarchy and strip the rights of those who don't fit in that mold. Uh, the folks who are involved in militia movements like the Oath Keepers have a vision of this society where white men with guns make a lot of the decisions and the rest of us don't have much power through the vote. I mean, ultimately, they're anti-democratic because they want to strip the rights and the voting power of many, many citizens and refashion the United States into some sort of imagined version of the past that they have, right? Which would mean taking away rights from millions of Americans. It's a very terrifying vision of what our country should look like. Heidi Byron. Meanwhile, the central issue animating those who assaulted the Capitol was the false theory that Donald Trump's election was stolen by the Democrats. Asked today if Biden had fairly won the election, Kevin McCarthy, the House, the GOP minority leader, refused to make a commitment. We want to make sure more people have the ability to vote and that it's as secure and with the election where we go. That yes, ma'am. Yeah, your question. Your question was, was the White House. Was it legitimate? Is Donald Trump wrong when he says the election was stolen? You know, Jonathan, we talked about this a long time. I've already answered that question. What, thank what, what you. Was the answer? Is thank Trump you. We'll move on now. Thank you very, thank you very much. Thank you. So you won't answer that. Jonathan, I've answered it numerous times. I know you have a microphone. I know what you want to do. I've already answered the questions with the media. Thank, is he wrong when he says thank you for your time. Go right ahead. Kevin McCarthy. And as the tensions around the possible revelations of wrongdoing by the president tonight rises, protesters were at the Department of Justice yesterday to demand criminal charges be brought against Trump. D.C. activist Adam Eidinger said, how long must the public wait for action by the Department of Justice? The whole country is waiting for you to do something. And waiting for the next election is cowardly. When he has already broken the law. When there's already overwhelming evidence that he tried to send a mob to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power to the new duly elected president of the United States, President Biden. And this guy is still walking around free and the rest of the world is wondering, are we going to turn into Russia or what? New York activist and yippie Dana Beal was there. He compared Trump to Nixon and Watergate. But I'm here today as a yippie reenactor. And we are reenacting Watergate, except that Donald Trump has actually given us a bunch of people and that was Dana. Now, Nixon resigned in 1974 after facing a, uh, a vote that pretty much made it inevitable he would be impeached. He was a much stronger supporter, it said, of the basic institutions of government, despite his extremely conservative views and prosecution of the very unpopular war in Vietnam. The Watergate scandal began when a team of Burglars working for the Republican Party were caught breaking into the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate housing project in Washington, D.C. Nixon, facing more and more pressure in one of his many TV announcements, had this to say. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. And he did resign 
just a few months after that speech. Jefferson Morley is the author of Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, just released is uh, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, which occurred on June 17th. The book focuses on the relationship between President Nixon and then-CIA Director Richard Helms and relies on documents partly released and a re-examination of overlooked portions of the Nixon tapes. Jefferson Morley spoke with WBAI earlier today. The big similarity is Congress trying to hold a lawless president accountable. Um, that was the, the, a, a key feature of the Watergate developments. As people began to realize that the Nixon White House had been burglarizing and spying on its enemies, um, Congress steps in and says, you know, you can't do that and creates a special prosecutor and creates a Senate Watergate committee and then that culminates in the threatened impeachment, and when impeachment became virtually certain, President Nixon resigns. In the case of Trump, Congress does the same thing, steps in to try and curb uh, a lawless president over the, uh, the business of, of, of Ukraine and Trump's attempt to strong-arm the government there. The difference is, is that in the early 1970s, people in Congress responded to their constitutional duty and put it ahead of their partisan loyalties. And so a lot of Republicans abandoned Nixon, even though they favored his policy. Um, in the case of Trump, people's, the partisan identities of people in Congress prevailed. They did not do their constitutional duty, and they didn't hold the lawless president accountable. So those are the similarities and the differences. Why are there so many Cuban-Americans in the CIA? Why do they find their way to Nixon? And why are they so determined? The reason there's so many Cubans involved in the Watergate burglary is because they were recruited by Howard Hunt, a leader of the CIA operation to overthrow the government of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. And the reason Howard Hunt is working for the White House is because he was recommended to the White House, to White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman, by CIA Director Richard Helms. And Helms provided Nixon with what he wanted. He wanted a dirty trickster to take on his enemies, and Hunt fit the bill. The Cubans signed up because Hunt told them that they were going to be participating in another operation to overthrow the government of Cuba, which was not at all true. He, he recruited them under false pretenses. They imagined that he might have some influence over U.S. policy. He did not. Were they looking for embarrassing details? I mean, today you have QAnon. They were, and... looking, they were looking for blackmail information. They were looking for information that would compromise Democratic Party politicians, particularly anybody related to the Kennedys, because in 1971 and 1972, Nixon thought that he was going to be running against Ted Kennedy in the 1972 election. So Trump has, a, has learned how to deal with uh, the youth movement in America in his own way. The Watergate events occurred in 1972 as the countercultural change that had come about with the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement in the 1960s was growing and spreading. And so Watergate was not just uh, you know, a political scandal. It was also a time when there were whole new attitudes where once institutions and people who wouldn't be criticized 
like the president of the United States or the CIA, all of a sudden everybody was criticizing them. So there was a fundamental change in the culture, and Nixon was caught up in that. And I think your point is good. Trump has absorbed the lessons of Nixon and is much more aggressive and much less respectful of institutions. And he's gotten away with it precisely because our institutions are weaker than we thought during the Watergate era. Jefferson Morley's book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spy Master, and Watergate, was just released for the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in on June 17th. And the governor gave a speech today. She was talking at an event uh, to promote her uh, approach to the Penn Station redevelopment plan that uh, uh, began under her predecessor, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, and got a lot of opposition from folks in the neighborhood who say it would uh, destroy their community and also make it very difficult for small businesses in New York City, even more difficult than it is. The governor, though, thinks this, uh, says uh, the Redevelopment of the plan of the Penn Station area is the best possible thing that could happen to New York City. We did because this is their neighborhood. In November, I announced revisions to the neighborhood plan based on what we heard from those individuals. And this new plan will make Penn, the whole Penn area a place where New Yorkers want to work and to live. It'll have protected views of the Empire State Building. It'll add spectacular public space. I just came by from where that space is going to be. I said, oh, I hope those trees grow fast. It's going to be so beautiful, an oasis. It's going to be extraordinary. And add the space you saw in the video, but also eight acres, 30,000 square feet public space, larger than Rockefeller Center. That's the governor. But Lynn Ellsworth, the uh CEO, founder, co-founder of the uh, Empire Station Coalition, had this to say. I don't think anybody disputes that we need to do something to Penn Station because it's awful as it is. Certainly we don't dispute that. What's going on is that our coalition has a better plan of how to get a good Penn Station without all the negative side effects that Governor Hochul is doing. Governor Hochul is giving vast quantities of that neighborhood over to Vernado, this country's third largest real estate investment trust with billions and billions in assets. They're seizing that land by eminent domain to basically Robin Hood in reverse. They're taking from the poor, literally, and giving to the rich by eminent domain. They're giving it over to Vernado. Here's a perfect example. On the corner of 30th and 7th, is the Church of St. John the Baptist, which has been there since 1870. It's occupied by Franciscan monks who live in the parish house next door. They have served the poor there since 1870. They run food pantries and homeless services and all kinds of stuff out of their parish house. The church is always open. We're going to demolish their home and their church and kick them out and give that spot over to Vernado for a super tall, which will not just an ordinary skyscraper, a super tall, which will be Class A office space. Look, the neighborhood is currently a reservoir of Class B and C office space. This is a cheap office space that is the meat of New York's small business world and the creative economy as well. And this Vernado plan is only about Class A office space. They're taking away Class B and C, demolishing it, demolishing homes. But the post office data tells us 
that 2,200 households reside on the eight sites that are being targeted in this project. Now, they say they're going to put in 1,800 housing units. 500 and some of those are going to be uh, affordable. Yeah, 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 right. But in general, we're looking at a net loss in housing units. We're looking at complete loss, a wipeout of Class B and C office space. We're seeing a handover of the public domain to Vernado for this Vernado campus. We have a better plan. We are calling on the state senate to open public hearings on the matter and to hire full-on economists to evaluate our better plan and compare it in cost-benefit terms to what the governor is doing. Okay, let's do a full comparison now and see which plan wins. The claim that they have consulted the community is entirely false and spurious, is absolutely Orwellian, and I can't believe they would say stuff like that. First of all, we represent 15 organizations who are both citywide and local in character, like the Murray Hill Neighborhood Association, the 29th Street Association. What about uh, what this says about these private-public partnerships? It's a use of private equity to develop New York City. I'm an economist. I have a PhD in econ, specialized in economic development, and our plan is based in turning, expanding track capacity in Penn, and you make into a through-running station. When you do through-running, you can have a regional unified train network. This is what we should do. It would make us like Paris RER or the London system. Let's do it. The one economic thing that economists know is that when you invest in efficient transit like that on a regional basis, you raise regional gross domestic products, which means you have rising prosperity in the region because transit costs have come down so much and become so much more efficient. You can issue normal government bonds, textbook style, like no fancy games with real estate people making deals, like you pay us payments in lieu of taxes, and then we'll make a swap with you and we'll give you some air rights. You don't need to do that when you have invest in efficient transit. This is, to me, a no-brainer. You'd think the governor would just, like, grab it and run. Maybe she just doesn't understand it. Maybe that's it. Lynn Ellsworth is coordinator of the Empire Station Coalition. And that's on the news for Thursday, June 9th, 2022. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.